So we're going back to our roots for today's episode to talk about policing again. And I'm sure you all heard about the $1 million increase that the Edmonton Police got to their budget recently. So it's a really good opportunity for us to talk about why police keep getting money, but also why this is tied to, I think, a general lack of accountability when it comes to police in Edmonton and Alberta largely. We'll be interviewing Rob Huell today, uh, who's a community member who's been a part of various police advisory committees and councils. Um, he's been a part of Indigenous uh, councils and advisory committees with police, as well as the recent Community Safety and Wellbeing Task Force that was put together by the City of Edmonton. And Rob is really critical of policing and how it's been conducted in Edmonton, and I think raises a lot of very important points, and mainly a point around the fact that um, despite their performance, whether they perform very well, whether they perform very poorly, the arguments around police funding um, stay the same. It's always more money um, every year. So in 2000, at the start of the last two decades, we saw the budget sitting at 106 million. And city council had the Edmonton police come back to council every year to essentially ask for whatever money they needed. And it was relatively routine for council to deny requests by the Edmonton police for things like um, extra money to operate their helicopter that they received um, or to hire extra officers. So for example, even before 2000, in 1991, police chief Doug McNally fought to add 11 officers, but um, was left with a budget of 76 million um, and the ability to add just one officer. So I think now we see a conversation that's relatively polarized where I think people um, rightfully think that police have always gotten what they wanted, but I think there has still been limits that were placed. And even going back uh, more recently to 2014, um, council identified pretty clearly that giving police everything that they asked for um, was a problem. So former Mayor Don Iveson pointed out in budget talks in 2014, um, when city council was debating that um, the police budget has gone up by 112% in the last 12 years. And the approach for decreasing police funding was to essentially ask for other levels of government to pitch in, so federal and provincial money to come in, um, and also to create the funding formula that we currently see today that will provide predictable funding. And I think back then they thought would eventually lead to a decrease in funding to police. So that didn't necessarily happen, but I also think it's really interesting to see how um, none of the arguments that were made when kind of confronted by the fact that police continue to get increased funding, um, none of the arguments included um, to just not increase the funding. I think a lot of the arguments were, we have to keep giving them more money. We just have to change how we keep giving them more money. So budget levels continue to increase except for in 2015. So in 2016, we saw 306 million. Um, in 2017, we saw 322 million. Um, when the funding formula was implemented in 2018, 
Um, it was 335 million. Before I go any further, I think it's important to point out that these numbers include a margin of error of around three to four armored trucks or, you know, three to four million dollars because it depends on what source you go to for police budget numbers, um, whether it's the PDF from the police or media sources. Um, but we continued to see increases until um, George Floyd happened, as people like to say, um, in 2020, when money was diverted um, from the budget, but increases still kept happening. Um, and I think it's also important to point out um, in 2014-15, when budget conversations were happening, um, there was even talks about um, moving money towards what was called back then um, preventative crime initiatives. Um, so community organizations like Reach Edmonton um, thought that their crisis program line, or sorry, crisis line program uh, fit the bill, and they're asking the city for $500,000. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at that ask versus what we're seeing now, which is $11 million being divided into uh, different streams, and then $1 million um, this year. So pretty dr dramatic increase um, over five years, I think. But also I think it shows this low ball almost of the amount that should have been uh, in place years ago, now actually seeing an acceleration in that number, given the fact that we're seeing a lot more public pressure, and I guess even basic acknowledgements that the current system we have now is clearly not working. So at the same time, uh, police are changing their strategy, I think, and, and becoming really clever in their ability to adapt to uh, the social conversation around policing by creating more social services and trying to adapt and act as social workers um, in order to hold on to funding or create a situation where social work is done under their umbrella. So like I said before, funding can be continued instead of going to actual social agencies and actual social workers. Um, so all of this is happening under the context of what I believe is a clear lack of accountability when it comes to um, not only how much power we've given to police, how much authority, but also I think, yeah, like I said, a blank check, um, and um, continuation and status quo by media and by the government as well. Um, so need for police is going down. The crime severity index has been trending downwards for decades, uh, despite occasional increases, we're seeing a downward trend. Um, and I think we're also seeing incredible harm being done to communities by policing. Um, indigenous communities, black communities in Edmonton have seen decades um, basically a century, if not more, of police violence, police harassment. Um, so that, I think, should be enough to, to justify not only larger accountability, but seriously questioning the system that we currently have in place. A case that I want to talk about that I think exemplifies a lot of the issues that we're talking about is a story that was reported a few weeks ago about a victim of sexual assault in Edmonton who reported her crime to the Edmonton police and was met with a lot of myths around rape, such as the police telling her that the experience that she had was consensual um, when it wasn't, and that she regretted that, and also diminishing and dismissing what happened to her. So the victim complained about the way she was treated, 
and Chief Dale McPhee dismissed the complaint um, against the officer and claimed that there was no wrongdoing in the situation um, because the officer deemed that they were in the right in that situation. Um, the victim went on to appeal this case um, to the Alberta Law Enforcement Review Board, um, and that repeal was further dismissed. Um, so after that, the victim of this crime also went on to apply for this uh, potential money that's given out to victims in Alberta called Victims of Crime Benefit um, and was also denied for that. Um, and this is kind of a repeated pattern, I'd say, um, that essentially ended with um, an appeal by the victim's lawyer of that previous decision only to end up with $10,000, um, which only covered the victim's legal fees. Um, so didn't even go into any other damages or any other um, expenses that this person had to um, endure, essentially just to have like a basic amount of justice after having such a traumatic thing happen to them. Um, and this uh, entire mechanism to actually give victims money um, called the Alberta Victims of Crime Financial Benefit Program um, and the Criminal Injuries Review Board was actually disbanded recently too. So it doesn't even exist anymore. But I think this case is a really good example of, like I said before, a lot of the issues that we're talking about today um, and the things that show that not only police are unaccountable, but that they get to decide um, the rules that govern themselves. Um, and yeah, these are things we're going to talk about today. And this case is a really good example of these issues. So Rob Huell is a community member here at Edmonton who's been part of the policing conversation for a long time. Um, as someone who served on various Indigenous advisory councils and committees with the Edmonton Police, as, as well as the uh, Community Safety and Wellbeing Task Force um, this past couple of years here. So I really enjoyed this interview with Rob. I think that Rob is someone who's really well informed about various perspectives when it comes to policing um, and also has you know lived experience um, as someone who went through um, an incidence of police brutality in 2005 um, that influenced a lot of his perspective um, on policing. Um, and in our conversation, uh, me and Rob kind of go into a little bit of the cycle of police asking for ad additional money from politicians um, and how there are a lot of, I guess, um, contradictions and a lot of missteps when it comes to um, the past that we kind of give police um, in this idea of whether or not things are going well or badly, whether or not we actually have metrics to actually track performance, um, funding keeps going up. And this is not necessarily a rule that's applied to almost any other organization or institution. Um, so another thing that Rob, I think, does a really good job of doing in this interview is kind of tracing the roots of policing um, as a colonial practice against indigenous people and as something that's always been inherently violent and inherently built to displace people and protect property um, and acquire property for the ruling class, um, which in Canada historically has been, you know, white settlers um, and especially in Edmonton too. 
So Rob also points to the fact that we essentially have services right now, such as the Bentero Society, such as the Bear Clan Patrol, um, Reach Edmonton, um, services that are operating, um, that need funding, that need support, um, and that play a crucial part in community safety, but aren't necessarily put on the same level or at least given the same respect um, as the Edmonton Police for the serious work that they do in the community. So I want to give you a heads up before you listen to this interview that it was conducted over the phone because that's what Rob was most comfortable with and the audio quality might not be the best or what you maybe expect it to be, but I can assure you that all of Rob's answers to my questions are uh, fantastic. Um, very, very good. Very insightful. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy the interview um, and everything Rob has to say. Do you want to maybe tell listeners a bit about your um, origins in the conversations around um, policing, around justice, and um, this new kind of umbrella term of uh, community safety? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I am originally from northern Alberta. I grew up in the kind of the Slave Lake um area and i am from swan river first nation which is a community just north of slave lake uh, on the shores of lesser slave lake um grew up there on an off reserve uh, grew up in in the town um came to the city after kind of graduating high school and then after uh, high school went into post-secondary um and the reason that i became involved in kind of social justice and and policing is because in 2005 uh, myself and my brother were uh, the victims of a starlight tour at the hands of the edmonton police service um i guess these were prominent and and commonplace activities at that time that i didn't learn about until much much later in life and then um, I've also been involved in Indigenous relations and working with the Indigenous community, uh, increasing their advocacy and voice, and that naturally led me into looking at justice and policing because Indigenous people are all represented in all of those systems. And then um, I was happy to be part of the Community Safety Wellbeing Task Force that was created by the city in 2020. And... Um, and yeah, and from there, I just continue to be uh, an advocate and continue to challenge these um, these kind of systems that are abusing BIPOC individuals and Indigenous people and still seeking justice for my complaint against the Edmonton Police Service uh, for my treatment in 2005. So when it comes to your own um, personal case, um, stemming all the way back to 2005, um, do you feel like justice has been uh, delivered for your case? You mentioned that you're still seeking it. So what what is the situation with that? Um, well, it, it the whole process has been um, a long-standing, ongoing process, and it helped to highlight the flaws in the system and and the problems with police investigating police and um, not taking claims very seriously and whatever else. So my understanding, my latest update is that it's sitting. Um, it might be. It might be on the police chief's desk. It might be on Dale McPhee's desk right now. He may have to uh, review it. But um, I've provided all the information that I can provide. We have witnesses. We have corroborating statements. We have uh, all the all the the information that we could provide to the best of our ability. 
Um, so it's all sitting with the EPS. Again, the problem with police investigating police is that my complaint originally fell off uh, the table a number of years ago. I had to hire a lawyer to get it re revitalized and get it taken more seriously. And then we've been through that process ever since. But um, through the, the work of the task force, it helped me to better understand how flawed the system is and how uh, lacking in accountability uh, the Edmonton Police Service and other institutions are uh, in regards to their conduct with people. And so, yeah, you mentioned um, when you answered my first question that you grew into um, challenging the flaws that we see um, in the system. Do you maybe want to share with listeners um, a few of the um, a few of the challenges that you think are are pretty obvious when it comes to um, policing, and then the larger uh, justice system? I think that that legislates and and I guess. Um, authorizes these kind of actions um, by armed officers. And I guess especially against um, in- Indigenous people who in this country, um, I think, have faced unique challenges when it comes to um, police brutality and, and, uh, and oppression against police. Yeah, it's, I think it, it starts um, it starts at the very beginning of, uh, of Canada, of Canadian history, of of the march westward of the RCMP or the Northwest Mounted Police um, and their the establishment that created them to to not protect the West but to uh, kind of corral and contain Indigenous people in the West. That's what the Northwest Mounted Police were created for: sand, steel, all that mythos, all that all that nonsense. Um, it wasn't to to free anybody; it was actually to restrict and contain. Uh, the flourishing indigenous people that were in the West. And then from there, that model of policing became kind of the model that all of these other institutions now follow. So again, if the root of policing in Canada was to suppress indigenous people, then it would make sense that the ongoing creation of these other institutions and organizations would continue that suppression because that's what they were um, designed to do, and and the evidence is in the courts. It's in it's in the justice system. It's in the the staggering statistics that continue to come out on how fifty percent of women in the justice system are indigenous and in, in the jails, and and we only represent a small margin of the overall population in the country. So that tells you that there's serious flaws leading to incarceration rates and, and, and over-criminalization of Indigenous people, um, and that the systems don't progress, they don't change, they don't shift, they just continue doing the same kind of practice that's been in, in place since 1880, 80, 1885, 1884, around, uh, around the early days of this country. Um, and again, it, it's, it, it goes back to the root of the issue and then it uh, it just continues to extrapolate from there and then you see it in kind of the way that these institutions and these organizations deal with indigenous people on the daily and then how people that are intending to go into those systems treat people on the daily and and you see story after story of indigenous people being brutalized being victimized being kicked out of the city center mall by people who are given even an inch and an ounce of authority, then abusing that authority to chastise Indigenous people on our own territories. Um, I think that is what the overarching system was designed to do and continues to do and continues to perpetuate. And you you don't have to look any further than news headlines of the day to see 
another body, another policing force doing something to BIPOC and Indigenous people in a in a vile in a vile volatile and vile and violation kind of process that that this Canada this country and Canada is kind of founded upon. So um, bringing that into perspective with dealing with um, and criticizing uh, the Edmonton Police Service and other institutions, uh, trying to hold them to a higher level standard, a higher level accountability, um, has kind of driven this advocacy and this seek for and this search for justice overall for uh, everyone that's been involved with even minor interactions with, with police services. And so you've been involved in the public conversation around um, justice and policing for for quite some time now. And I would say that it's pretty widely known that there's been a conversation shift since um, summer 2020. But um, from your perspective, from 2010 to 2020, how would you say that decade was characterized when it came to conversations around um, reform um, and policing and community relationships um, between um, groups like indigenous people, black people, and um, police departments and the justice system largely? Well, it's 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 definitely been um, a period of fluctuation. There's been some positive actions, but again, when new leadership come into place, when new governments take power, we always see this same cyclical action of policing where there's a call for increased accountability, the people that were calling for it then fall to the wayside, and then it goes back into the same old course of business that policing has always done. And in the case of the Empton Police Service, we see that with um, the racism kind of initiatives in the early two, 2010s or even before that, where there was a push for um, community safety. There was a lot of focus on marginalized communities. I remember in the early days, there was this, this emphasis and focus on the Somali community, and there were all these task force created. And there was organizations like Reach Edmonton that were established that uh, that had kind of community-based initiatives and youth-based initiatives to get people uh, to get to challenge this image of violence that was being uh, perpetuated in the media and by the police service, um, which again, by focus and targeting those services on that one group of people, then alienated them even further and continued to perpetuate this this story and this misnomer of Somali violence when marginalized communities are no more violent than any other kind of organization and are much less involved in crime and and blue collar crime and things like that. But again, we see this cycle of of re-victimization, re-emphasis, and then access to more resources. So you see a huge influx of of funding following those kind of movements um, where there's very little checks and balances. You see more authority given to the Edmonton Police Commission, which again, and it came up through the kind of conversations at city council, how there's a lack of accountability and real community representation there. So people have zero information on what is actually happening. And we saw the high profile things with Scott McKean and others complaining about the new tank that um, the Edmonton police service bought that was kind of slipped under the rug. Um, so you see this, this in these cycles of, 
community emphasis, targeting specific communities, massive funding influxes. You have them freezing the funding formula, and then you have new leadership come in with fresh ideas that want to put things into check. They start to push the initiative, and then you just see, again, even today with the response from the Edmonton Police Service, you see them fall into the same cycle of all these these bad guys downtown, these these troublemakers. We we don't have enough uh, resources. We don't have enough accountability. We need uh, more people on the ground, and and then it, it it leads to more funding kind of injections or arguments. And I think it's it's the, over the last ten years you've seen this um, unbridled support for policing, which I think is kind of interesting because. When you look at the data, when you look at the statistics, uh, policing and law enforcement is the only industry, the only service where your performance doesn't have any merit on whether or not you get funded. You can do poorly. You can have crime rates skyrocket through the roof. And then you use that as a justification to get more funding because you don't have enough to stop crime. If things are going well, crime rates are down. You see the same messaging from the police where we're doing such a great job. We need more money to keep doing such a great job. And I think that's something that is being lost on the general public, but I hope is coming to the to the forefront with some of these budget conversations we're having. Yeah. So I guess segueing off that, that end of your point there. So budget conversations are changing now at city council. Um, and I would say that there are a few, um, there, there is at least one, like Michael Jans is pretty outspoken when it comes to his, um, his intention to um, give the police less money. There are counselors who are seriously open about questioning the fact that, you know, we continually fund and uh, increasingly fund our police department. Um, and then you obviously have detractors, but even in the detractors, I guess now we also see an acknowledgement that it is uh, incredibly unsustainable. And there are a lot of questions around, like you said, metrics, um, performance, um, the fact that it's a pretty fractured um, system when it comes to community safety. Um, so, uh, yeah, from what you saw in the last budget cycle, um, yeah, what gives you optimism and do you envision or do you see anything substantially changing? And talks around um, a potential uh, forensic audit that um, Aaron Paquette brought up and also talks of opening up the funding formula for uh, Edmonton police. Yeah, I think I think the fact that um, the funding formula was frozen, first of all, and uh, and kind of put aside, I think was the first kind of real victory because um, for me that was one of the one of the greatest grifts that that ever uh, took place with the previous city council was the the sell job they did on that funding formula that that police, like any other kind of essential service, should have their funding escalated yearly and and to a greater rate than what the even the city of Edmonton um, uh, base funding was receiving uh, was was I think just a, a fantastic kind of sell job on on what policing um, doesn't really need to have in place and uh so the fact that that funding formula was put aside was the first kind of real uh push forward for change um and i think now with conversations happening around 
a new funding formula, establishing some new metrics, which um, show council and, and the community at large kind of questioning the metrics that are being followed. Because if you look at the annual reporting of the Edmonton Police Service, they're allowed to, to follow and measure their own metrics, whatever they desire. So they have uh, response times, they have uh, recruitment, they have um, BIPOC officers, they have LGBTQ2S plus officers in their force, they have um, uh, complaints against officers. These are the things that they themselves have elected to track. And when you even examine their data on those metrics, they're missing a lot of them uh, to a large degree. And, and they're they're missing their targeted uh, response times. They're missing their uh, recruit their recruitment uh, stats have been stagnant. They they are recruiting as many BIPOC individuals that are into the force that are leaving the force, and that tells me that there's a real issue with the system as a whole. If if you can't retain officers um, longer than than you really you should uh, in a system that has unlimited funding and and then limited accountability it should be easier to keep people on board um and so as long as we're shifting the conversation and holding them to different accountability um, i think we're making good headway the fact that they still managed to get an increase based upon truth and reconciliation day still leaves a, a bad taste in my mouth with this council um i think Again, we, we were very close to having a conversation around just freezing it outright. Um, but the fact that they were able to use the holiday, um, Dale, uh, Chief McPhee, was able to use the holiday as in, as a Métis person um, to justify a funding increase should hold a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because a lot of other organizations, a lot of governments had to absorb those costs, um, shift things accordingly. Um, and then to saddle council with having to, to increase the funding. And even though it was only a million dollars, um, it's still an ongoing increase, which again, when the community was uh, up in arms, we, we pushed for a wholesale funding freeze um, and really a chance to do better things with the money that is frozen. And um, the Safer for All report outlines how much money could be saved, how much money could be redistributed to the community. Um, and then the problem is that, of course, with with COVID and everything else, the previous council wasn't able to uh, unleash a lot of that funding that was frozen, uh, or they did for other kind of community initiatives and organizations and, and grant programs, I think, is what, what happened to it. But now with this other freeze ongoing, it gives us a better opportunity to redistribute the funds to the community, to give people uh, and organizations the funding that they need um, so that the police can do less. Um, and, and I think that's something that's also come out over this whole course of funding and conversations is that the police are doing a lot. They're being asked to do a lot. And that is because the community as a whole has offloaded a lot of responsibility to them because they are a law enforcement agency. So once we start to take back some of that community ownership, maybe we can uh, better align our priority priorities and maybe the Edmonton Police Service can do what they're intended to do, which is to keep people safe. And you, it's hard to keep people safe when you're dealing with all of these other things that police deal with. Um, so with that comes a funding conversation and hopefully 
uh, a flowing of more equitable funding to other organizations that are really needed to do the work, do the good work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about um, some of those other organizations and I guess maybe the conversation around authority. So that was something that Chief McPhee brought up to City Council in his argument for sustained funding was that um, police still have the authority because they receive a lot of the calls. When I say calls, I mean, you know, calls, emergency calls, whether they be, um, you know, medical or safety or um, whatever number of things they could be. Um, police receive those calls and they also have the legislative authority authority to, I guess, um, act on those problems and, you know, be a part of the solution. Um, but we also have groups in Edmonton like Bear Clan Patrol, um, who you mentioned before, who are uh, actively in the streets every single day, um, helping the community when it comes to helping provide uh, resources, um, providing food, guiding people towards um, shelters, doing things like that. So um, when it comes to the conversation around authority and alternatives, um, do you maybe want to speak to the kind of future that you want to see and um, where funding and authority should be directed um, to help people in a meaningful way? Yeah, I think um, it's a similar, very similar conversation to the metrics and the measurements kind of conversation where um, the Edmonton Police Service and the Edmonton Call Center are are under their kind of authority and their control. So essentially the Edmonton Police Service uh, and their officers who and the call center employees who to a large degree we heard through the task force work were, were former Edmonton Police Service officers um, determine which call goes where and how people respond. And uh, through their own admissions to uh, city council and the community, 30% of the calls that come in um, aren't even police work. They're, they're social agency work, they're social services work. So again, when you have that much uh, kind of work taking, those many calls taking place that, that police shouldn't be involved in at all, and it isn't within their authority, um, then maybe we can look to other organizations to do a lot of that work. And it's not to say, and, and you always get caught into this, oh, well, what about the the high-risk, high-volatile situations where there's domestic violence and all these other things? Yeah, well, no, that that is what the police should be doing. Um, no one's saying that the police shouldn't be doing what the police should be doing. Um, they have guns and, and things for a reason, and that's to keep people safe in these high vol- highly volatile situations. But it's the other things that, that they don't require a gun to do um, that are taking up a lot of their time. So again, it, it's a lot of the same conversation. So when you have a call come in, and uh, an ex-police officer can determine whether or not uh, who attends the call. Um, that's also akin to kind of people choosing what kind of work they want to do for the day. And and again, that's why we called for as a task force more transparency, uh, independence from the police force, uh, a better coordinated system where um, people, once you call 911, instead of, instead of fire police ambulance, maybe there's a, a mental health kind of option as well. If people are having a mental health crisis and rather than just, then rather than sending the cops, maybe you send a mental health worker and, and another organization like crisis diversion or something like that. Um, 
the problem is that we're not seeing those conversations happen at council. We're still seeing kind of uh, Chief McPhee and the Edmonton Police Service manage what calls come in and trying to determine how the call center is run and trying to determine uh, who answers what call rather than the real transparent and, and accountable mechanisms that we need to see um, to have better organizations respond to some of these calls. And and also the resources need to flow to these organizations so they can do their work appropriately. Uh, we're seeing, I, I read in the news the other day last week that there was a killing, a murder in one of the shelters downtown. Um, that tells me that that particular shelter doesn't have the resources required to properly search individuals for weapons to properly uh, do proper intake to ensure people are safe when they're coming in there and that's a failing in in funding that's a failing in resourcing and um and it's a failure in in the systems overall that that we're giving this organization that does all these other things that they're not supposed to be doing a boatload of money and then these other kind of direct service providers are left fighting over the scraps that that government throws out for um, prevention and other things. So I I hope that the conversation continues to progress a little bit more and that um, we start sending the right responders to the right calls and we don't get caught in the whole misnomer of, well, the police need to go to everything because you never know what's going to happen. I agree, every situation is different, but there are for sure situations and calls that police have no business whatsoever uh, walking into, and and many of those are uh, mental health calls and other things like that. So that's it for my questions, Rob. Um, Is there anything else that you want to add or anything else that you think listeners should know um, relating to our conversation? Um, I, th- I think I just want to emphasize that, um, again, policing is, is one of the few institutions where, um, regardless of how well or poorly you're performing, there's always money provided to you. And in Edmonton, in particular, that's come up directly through the budgeting process. That's come up directly through um, the last decade of, of advocacy and, sh- and desire to shift things. And that um, I think the community should continue to hold people to account and and uh, really don't and pay less attention to these negative stories that are coming out. Because again, if police are there to prevent crime, then a lot of these situations should be preventable with the amount of funding that they receive. Yet they come back with stories and media stories about all of this violence taking place. Well, I thought the police were supposed to be there mitigating that violence or security officers were supposed to be there. Um, and if they're not, then maybe we should be doing something differently so that uh, a lot of these incurrences can be can be avoided properly. And uh, I think we're heading in the right direction um, and that we just need to keep up the momentum and things will will change for the better. Um, and that's my hope. So I want to talk a little bit about how media coverage of police and especially this funding increase that we've seen um, is uh, an example of, again, what we've been talking about. So the Edmonton police recently got a $1 million 
budget increase. Um, but when this happened, we saw that the media framed it as a decrease in funding because they didn't get the promised $11 million that they were going to get according to the funding formula. So we saw headlines that essentially told the public that the police were going to struggle. Um, so this is taken from the Edmonton Journal when the budget was being discussed. Um, quote, we've taken too many hits um, and then Edmonton police advocating against further budget cuts to maintain current service levels. So just keep in mind that um, they're getting an increase in their budget of a million dollars. But because the increase isn't as much as they were expecting, this entire conversation has shifted into how the police are getting a budget cut and how they're not receiving the funding that they need. Um, and then the media definitely is playing up this narrative um, that I think is very, really good for police because then, you know, a lot of other things can happen. So essentially when we talk about this, um, I think it's important to um, understand as well that, yeah, this framing definitely benefits a few people. So when police get this increase, despite the fact that it's reported as a cut, um, they can definitely campaign and continue to, you know, continue to create narratives around police getting less money, meaning that our city will have more crime, meaning that they should get more money. Um, when it's also framed that way, I think that politicians can, you know, go to the public and say that they met the public's demands and say that, you know, we've responded to what you've wanted and we've also reinvested in other things. And again, it's important to point out, they still got an increase. So these narratives also benefit the media because crime and narratives around crime um, and stories are easy to essentially parrot because the main sources are police and you essentially get these um, communications releases or, you know, cut and dry stories about a criminal committing a crime, the police coming in and solving it. Um, and yeah, it's very easy to essentially run with these stories, but also stories that play on people's fear and that can often be sensationalized um, and run with. So essentially, you know, yeah, take advantage of partisan views on police um, and who should solve the problems around crime when things are portrayed as, you know, bad criminal, good police. Um, so, yeah, it plays into people's fear um, and then further stirs engagement. And I think this article um, by Global is a really good example of that, um, with the headline being Edmonton Police Budget Razor Thin Tipping Point. Um, after cuts. And this was published in November of 2019. And just from the beginning of the article, and this isn't even a quote from the Edmonton police, this is from Global Directly. Um, and it says here, quote, Edmonton Police Commission members ran through the numbers Thursday ahead of City Council's budget talks in December. It doesn't look good. Police are figuring out ways to cope with getting less money after the province decided to keep more of it for themselves. And then it goes into quotes about the police and, you know, really putting them at the forefront of the story as victims of further cuts um, so that, yeah, they can continue to do their jobs to prevent crime um, and essentially, yeah, continuing this narrative. Um, but I think also, yeah, perpetuating this idea of police being victims of less funding that prevents them from doing their jobs of, um, yeah, essentially catching criminals. 
And then there's also, I think, the media's ability to create, I guess, a, a, a real prevalence of crime. So if you look at the Edmonton Journal's front page um, or any you know issue of the Edmonton Journal, I think crime is usually something that's put at the very forefront. Um, if not on the first page, then definitely on the second. We're getting the police narrative. The police come in as heroes, as saviors of the story. Um, and yeah, you don't necessarily also get any of the context of the fact that, you know, the crime severity index has been, you know, going down in Canada, um, on a historical trend. So yeah, like I said, even if we have increases, um, year over year, the trend has been going down, um, historically over decades. So this context isn't, you know, usually seen or even remotely talked about when we look at stories um, about crime that are, again, often put at the forefront of these media publications. Um, so, yeah, I think a good example of this, but then that also ties into um, some of the things we mentioned about police oversight um, is, again, another article by Global, this time talking about a man that was shot and killed by police in central Edmonton um, and about how a police watchdog will investigate. So the headline does say that, you know, a man was shot and killed by police. But then when you actually go into the article, um, you know, we hear sentences um, about how, okay, the man, you know, entered into a criminal flight from police. Um, and then you essentially see how um, this man collided with an unoccupied vehicle. And then essentially um, the police subsequently discharged their firearm in response um, and fatally wounded this man, you know, so this kind of language I think is, um, you know, really perfect and very convenient to, I guess, paper over the fact that, yeah, police shot and killed someone, um, someone who was, you know, clearly suspected of a crime, probably in the process of doing a crime. But when you say that, you know, police said a man was fatally wounded, and when you use language like that, um, to essentially, I think, you know, yeah, paint a picture of, you know, the police doing something, you know, righteous and courageous in almost any situation, and especially in a situation where someone was killed by them, um, I think, yeah, people don't necessarily um, see things as they probably should. Um, and I think they see things the way that the police want them to see things. And unfortunately, I think the way the police want people to see things often lines up almost perfectly with the way that the media wants people to see things. So yeah, I think the public's perception of police violence is often shaped um, in distorted ways by the media. And um, we have a lot of examples from recent times in Edmonton of how this is perpetuated. One of the most important factors in the conversation around police is local politicians. And they don't often talk about police, I'd say, in a context outside of mentioning that the conversation around policing is contentious. Um, and then when they're required to during budget talks and other things um, around city council. Um, and I just want to go into maybe some of the reasons why I think this is the case. Um, and I think a lot of it's central. I think a lot of it centers around um, the fact that we have uh, inherent weakness in politicians that fundamentally don't really care um, because it doesn't really lie in their own interest to do so. So their interest, I think, we you know, we can see from previous years um, being rooted in re-election, 
being rooted in, you know, keeping the status quo, um, pleasing their peers, um, and usually I think appealing to constituents and voters, um, small amount of voters, at least in Edmonton, um, with narrow concerns around property. So these are their own concerns. And I think, you know, talking about police and policing in the same way that the public is, um, doesn't necessarily meet any of those um, self-interested concerns. Um, and yeah, doesn't really lead to, I think, um, any reason to particularly care about this issue or, you know, to really place it at the forefront of any meaningful conversation. Um, and when that's combined with this idea that we usually have of politicians having this blank check once they get elected um, and, you know, not necessarily rocking the boat and creating these um, policies that might change things too much because then when you go to get reelected, um, that might, you know, skew your chances. Um, and all of this also, I think, makes it really easy for um, politicians to be pushed around by powerful institutions. So when you have an institution like the police that sees um, a situation like we have now, um, I think it is relatively easy for them to come in and have their way with um, funding increases. There are also convenient ways to say what you're trying to say without actually saying it. So. Um, everyone avoiding the actual sentence, you know, policing by, you know, putting in their platforms um, this sentence community safety or these words community safety um, as a kind of placeholder for um, police or policing. Um, and while the term of uh, the umbrella term community safety is great, if we're actually talking about, you know, including social agencies, including um, the public in a really meaningful conversation around what that means for everyone, um, then that would be a different story. But I think oftentimes it's just a placeholder for, you know, talking about police without talking about police. Um, and another factor um, is governing, governing by habit. Um, so working with police in, you know, a very close way, I think has been the default um, for municipal politicians. Um, they obviously work as the enforcement arm of laws that are written by politicians on the provincial, federal, and municipal level. So um, you just govern by habit. You just go with the status quo. You've been working with your colleagues for a long time. They're integrated in a lot of things like city administration. Um, so there's no reason really to mention them and it's very easy to ignore these facts when these are your colleagues. Um, and again, yeah, it keeps that tacit support um, because they're protecting the state, they're protecting property, they're protecting law and order that is enshrined by these politicians and that's upheld and, you know, really put on a pedestal by these politicians. So there is no real reason in a lot of cases to challenge or even mention these institutions like police. And I feel like the idea of controlled opposition um, is often placed on activists or other people who are put into positions where they seem like they're opposed to positions um, when in reality they're being controlled or being manipulated to fit within a status quo. But this term also I think works really well for politicians who th they themselves want to be seen as um, opposition or you know oppositional towards um, police or opposite oppositional towards maybe more conservative um, counselors or politicians. But in reality, they are still controlled by um, the factors 
of the status quo, of increasing funding, um, of continuing to place authority and power into the police's hands. So yeah, thinking of this idea of controlled opposition as another factor of why politicians don't talk about police in these critical ways or even at all. Um, and I think another way that we can see this too is through issues management. So uh, this idea that um, issues such as police or any other issue can exist within this political vacuum for politicians and their staffs to then, you know, descend onto and essentially manage. So come up with ideas for how, you know, stakeholders should be engaged. Um, then you see things like leadership style being brought in, um, ideas of, you know, bringing everyone to the table. Um, and then, you know, policing becomes this thing where, yeah, you don't even have to mention it. You can if you want to, but it just becomes another issue that you, you know, you manage. Um, and managing can mean all sorts of things. Um, and I think all those things often fall into the narrow um, kind of category of, you know, what works best for their own interest, you know. And that interest, again, falls into re-election, keeping the status quo. And I, I think ultimately, yeah, seeing, seeing that um, politicians and their partners and colleagues um, ultimately end up on top. Um, so I think those are definitely some concrete reasons and um, kind of paint a larger context around um, why politicians often dance around this idea of challenging police or even talking about police in a, in a meaningful way. The current council that we have now has been engaged in the conversation around policing um, by essentially, you know, passing this funding increase that was then, you know, reported and talked about generally as a decrease because the police didn't get as much as they wanted. Um, and I think we saw Mayor Amarjeet Sohi, along with other councillors, um, being really critical of the structure and the network that police work within. And I guess just kind of asking and saying that they want the public to have a more integrated and connected network of community safety and well-being so that um, money can be placed in the right kind of pockets for where it's needed. Uh, we saw talks about creating more transparency and more metrics around the way police operate so that council isn't always in the dark for how to actually evaluate whether or not police are using their resources to the best of their ability and whether or not their funding is actually tied to performance. There's, a, there's certainly a lot of buzzwords in this conversation around policing now um, in 2022. And um, yeah, we're seeing a lot of politicians, I guess, resorting to um, pretty empty, pretty shallow conversations, I'd say, um, when it comes to how we're going to move forward with funding police in Edmonton. Um, so I guess I kind of hope that the conversation will evolve uh, in the future. And this is certainly something that we're going to keep our eye on, um, given that I think there's definitely uh, a public push for further direct action to defund the police. And um, yeah, I think politicians are on notice when it comes to the fact that people are paying attention. So as this conversation evolves, we'll certainly be paying attention and trying to bring you information. And yeah, we hope that you come back to the show for this kind of information, but also keep yourself informed 
on what we think are very crucial and um, very city-defining uh, topics as we move into the future of this year.